Okay, we're good. I think that's going. Let's do the intro. What anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Ready to work. Ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, makers, planners, writers, enthusiasts, it's time for... I, what I hope is going to be a really delightfully good workshop on how to write a fantasy novel. I, a little bit of context. First of all, this is the first time you're checking this out. Hi, uh, I'm John. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. It's my job and passion to help you write better. And what I normally do from time to time, in addition to doing a weekly writer's Q&A, uh, that was the other night or the other afternoon, I should say, uh, I also teach streaming workshops. And tonight we're going to have a workshop on how to write fantasy novels. Now, ages and ages and ages ago, I think one of the first streams I ever did was how do I write this? And I, I laid out a groundwork for fantasy. It's not bad. Uh, I stand by it. I, I think it was okay for the time, knowing what I knew and stuff. But I want to tell you that I can do better now. And so I'd like to do better because I have a lot of clients. I have a lot of friends. I, I know a lot of writers who are producing fantasy novels or who want to produce fantasy novels. And I genuinely want them to succeed. I really do. I want everybody, even like... People who swear up and down they could never write a book. I want everybody to be able to produce a book. I want everybody to write what they want and get it on a shelf and sell it and just feel that joy of success and creation. So if I can give you a few tools tonight, if I can explain a few things, if I can make some part of something easier for you, well, then I've succeeded in my day as a joy. So tonight we're going to talk fantasy. Now I've done this before and I don't want to really repeat myself, but there's going to be some necessary overlap because there has to be. Every time you teach something, you're going to have to at some point cover some basics. I'm not talking tonight about how critical it is that you have, you know, a certain number of characters or that certain kinds of fantasy stories work better in this person or, or this tense or whatever. That's, that's not really what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in doing tonight is laying out the points where a typical fantasy manuscript in three, in three subgenre where a typical manuscript falls apart. I want to talk to you about the weaknesses in fantasy production. I want to talk to you about all the spots where the red flags go up and, and any pimp or agent or editor or, or reviewer or influencer or somebody who's got a gatekeeper or an authority thing going on, where, wherever they're going to throw a red flag and you know cry foul, I want you to be aware of them. I want you to know them going in because I want you to do better. I cannot, and in fact, no one can. I cannot guarantee a lack of rejection. 
I cannot guarantee that you will always get like the highest number of stars or whatever. Nobody can do that. What I can do, what I can give you though, are some more things to think about, more ideas to consider, more tools for the toolbox so that you don't stumble in the same spot that everybody else stumbles in. I want you thinking about more things than just, oh, I have a typical D&D adventure party and I've now written down what they're doing. I want you to do better and I believe you can. So tonight, here's what I have. Three subgenre and a few really important points to consider when it comes to um, construction and revision uh, at least for the long term when it comes into like publishing. Now, this is not aimed at one particular kind of publishing over a different kind. Like you can publish how, however the hell you want. That's, that's totally fine. That's, that's all up to you. Whatever's going to make you happy. What uh, I want to do is just equip you. So let's say hi to chat first because I see people are here. Hello, chat. I waved. I know it's audio and I waved. But hi, everybody. I hope you're doing well. Uh, it's great to be here. I hope you're good. I hope your night was a good one and your day was delightful, too. Happy uh, Vivance Patent Expiration Day for those of you who celebrate. And I can't think of anything else important that's happening in the news. So thank you for being here. Let's get started, though, shall we? So we're going to start with high fantasy. Because the majority of fantasy novels, at least from unpublished authors, tend towards high fantasy if they don't come from the other genres we're going to talk about. High fantasy is the most popular flavor of fantasy right now. Um, at least pure fantasy. Pure fantasy means it is more fantasy genre than anything else. It's not fantasy romance. It's not, you know, fantasy this. It's fantasy. It's just all fantasy all the time. We're going to start with high fantasy, Okay. And we are going to look at the first stumbling block in a high fantasy story. But let's just cover some groundwork for high fantasy first, just so we know what we're talking about. High fantasy does not have to necessarily be medieval. You know, chainmail, swords, knights, that kind of stuff. Doesn't need to be medieval. It can be. It's totally fine if it is. Doesn't need to be, though. It also doesn't need to be monarchistic. Kingdoms, kings, queens, single rulers, top-down structure does not need to be. Can be, totally fine if it is. Doesn't need to be, though. It also does not have to be patriarchal. You could have ladies. You could have people that don't identify anyway on any spectrum of gender. It doesn't have to be patriarchy. It doesn't have to be male kings assigning quests in a top-down, you know, with female subordinate characters. You don't need to do any of that. You, you can. Uh, I, I kind of hope you don't, but you can do it. It's okay. It's not the end of the world, really. The big critical thing for high fantasy is that you just craft what's called an alternate Earth. Now, that does not mean you have our Earth and then you, like, deviate a little history. That's a that's alternate Earth, but that's a different kind of alternate Earth than what we're talking about here. When we talk about alternate Earth for high fantasy, we mean an Earth-like planet that has some Earth-planet, you know, similarities, but not entirely Earth. Like... Um, 
like the planet, well, Lord of the Rings is supposed to be Earth, but set in a different time. But let's do like the planet that Game of Thrones exists in. That, that la- those land masses, those continents, that kind of thing. That's an alternate Earth. It's not Earth. Like we're not going to suddenly turn left and go, hey, look, it's Luxembourg. But it's, it's Earth-ish. That's the only requirement for high fantasy. Not the medievalness of it, not the knights, not the wizards, not the dwarves, not the elves. Just the fact that it's on a earth, like, what's the word I want to use? Understudy, right? Like, it's earth-ish. That earth-ish does not have to be allegorical or analogous to earth. Uh, one of the main complaints with with um, Lord of the Rings is that it's everybody wants to dive into whether or not it's some sort of explanation or justification for World War II. Like the industrial complex is them chopping down the trees or like the this this group of fantasy creatures represents this country in the war. And and it doesn't have to do that. You don't have to go to those lengths. Um, you don't need to like describe the foreign powers of your world in terms of like, oh, these are the French, but in our fantasy kingdom, we don't call them the French, that kind of thing. You don't need to do that. You you can, of course, in the course of crafting and revising, you can totally look at other places around the world and go, ah, I like these things. I want to incorporate them into my work, but the danger there is always going to be appropriation. The danger there is that you will overreach, that you will reach things to the point of caricature and suddenly all your, you know, not French, but French elves will suddenly be wearing berets and smoke a lot. Or, you know, that all your goblins or all your gnomes or something will be, you know, Semitic stereotypes or something. And it, you just don't, you don't need to do that. In fact, it's, it's super not good to do that. We want to get away from those building blocks. It's just not going to help. What this does need at this level are an ensemble of protagonists. We need a group. Usually there's a group. Usually it's the typical D&D party. You know, fighter, wizard, priest, rogue. Maybe we throw in a barbarian. Maybe we throw in like a big tough guy and a little little like squirrely person who's, you know, the thief or sneaky or something. There's almost always an ensemble. Now, the danger with that ensemble is that we, in order to build them, we carve them down, we whittle them down to just stereotypes. Ah, it's the big, strong guy. He's going to be, you know, dumb, but he's got a heart of gold. Ah, it's the sneaky guy. It's the one with the troubled backstory. Ah, it's the aloof priest who really comes to find that they care about the people in the party. And you boil everything down to really tired, really dull, horrendously boring as shit tropes. But you are completely capable of having an ensemble cast of protagonists. And yeah, I suppose if you really wanted to, you could jump from point of view to point of view. But the reason why that seldom works is, at least for the ensemble in high fantasy, is because they're, although they are dissimilar in their roles, I'm a wizard, that's a priest, that's a fighter. Uh, they are dissimilar in roles. They are too similar in agenda. We're all moving from left to right across the map so we can conquer the bad army. 
we're all more or less doing the same thing for more or less the same reason. Even if we have a guy who's coming in to betray the party or somebody's doing it for selfish mercenary reasons and everybody else is doing it for noble reasons, there's still reasons to do it. There's not enough not enough material there to qualify separating out those points of view. You just you, you just don't need to do that. Now, I should point out, lastly, one of the major selling points for high fantasy is that there's magical or technological presence in the story, meaning there's wizards or there's science stuff or tinkerers or inventors or engineers or whatever you want to call them. There's stuff, whether it's abilities or machinery or something, sometimes both, it can be both, but there's machinery or abilities that give the group the, the ensemble cast, I mean, but also the story itself, ability to go beyond just the limitations of physics. We can shoot fireballs. We can create, you know, maglev trains that seem supernatural. We can use things, be it magic or technology, to do more than what we could be constrained to do just with hands and feet. That's a selling point for high fantasy because it's usually in those points, the ensemble, and the magical or technological presence that people really try to make their work stand out from everybody else. The problem with that is that if everybody's got your D&D party, fighter, thief, wizard, priest, bard, whatever, everybody's got a group of those, and maybe we you know, mix it up a little bit so we have two fighters or three bards. There's still not enough distinction. There's still not enough difference. Just because you have three bards and I have one bard, we're still talking about a story with bards. It's not enough to make it stand out. And even if we add wizardry or technology, like, oh, it's high fantasy, but we've got, I don't know, diesel technology for our, our land clearing devices or something. That's interesting in itself, like these single concepts we made. That's cool that you have this one thing. It's it's sort of like in a comic book where we have a character who has a power, but they don't have anything else. Like they're they're just in the story to do the power. I can stretch my arms really far. I can teleport. I can uh, sneeze fire and ice or something. Oh, well, okay. I mean, it's not the end of the world that you have that, but you better have more than that as a character. Otherwise, you are just a vessel for this power, which makes you convenient, which means when we sh when you show up in the story, because we have nothing else to substantiate you with, all of a sudden we know, ah, here comes the wizard. The wizard only does magic. I guess we're going to solve this problem with magic. You've eliminated some level of the danger or risk or challenge with things. This is why it's really, really hard to write stories with superpowers, especially if you spread them out across a group of people. Because when we stick them all on one person, they can fly, they can leap buildings in a single bound, they can shoot laser beams, they can do this, they can do that. We have a reason, not so much for why they have the power, but we have multiple ways of solving a problem, which is the same thing we had if we had no power. There's always different ways to solve the problem. But when we boil a character too far down to just what they can do, we know that they're going to do the one thing they can do to solve the problem, which means we can only challenge them either by having them fail at the thing or not do the thing or it not working. And after a while, gets kind of tired. So tread carefully with your basic high fantasy construction.
But let's dive a little deeper. The first major rejection point for high fantasy is your character. It's a massive issue. Characters that are too flat, too underdeveloped, too reliant on trope, too reliant on, I have a troubled backstory and stubble, too, too reliant on, I do this one thing and that's all I got, or too reliant on writer creativity. I made up this backstory. They have all these things. I'm from this country and I have these parents and this lady's name is Edith and they make brownies and this and that. And you just show off how many things, the quantity of creativity instead of the depth and quality of that creativity. This is what red flags hard for high fantasy characters because in the absence of that depth, we go looking for character familiarity. So if we grab your, you know, stubbled ranger, we're probably at some point going to think about them in terms of like other famous rangers. And if we find that what you've crafted is too similar to what we assume to be now a modern template for this kind of character, you're not really trying very hard. You've just taken... Vigo Mortensen and filed the serial numbers off. You've just taken, you know, Elminster from D&D and you've given him a different color hat. You've got to really make your character not stand out because stand out just means be more creative. This is not an issue of adding more bells and whistles. This is an issue of depth, which means we need to go to the first level of depth with characters, which is motivation. Why is a character doing what they're doing? What is motivating a character to do X? Now, we're going to talk about X in terms of whatever the plot is or what their mission in a scene is or what their goal is or whatever. It's always going to be X, whether we're talking about character or plot or this or that. We shorthand it down to X. So here, we're asking for the motivation for X, whether that's within a scene, whether that's within a beat part of a scene, whether that's within a chapter, whether that's within the first act, third act, whatever, we are always looking for motivation. And we're going to sort motivations into two kinds. And we generally want not necessarily a balance, but we want to be aware of the different ways a character can be motivated. For instance, there's internal motivation. That's motivation that has to do with something the character thinks or believes or feels. They have a moral code, a moral compass, a sense of right and wrong. Or maybe we boil it down to something that the character already has within them. They grew up. They had, you know, Uncle Ben who taught them that with great power comes great responsibility. Or Ma and Pa Kent who taught the, you know, our hero to be a good person. They've been installed with some, with some life software that allows them to be a certain way and apply a template or a set of rules to the world. But ultimately, internal motivation boils down to something that the character doesn't need to be told. They feel it and they know it's the right thing to do. Now, whether or not the right thing to do is their perception or the actual like categorical right thing to do, that is a space you can operate in within your story. For instance, a character who is perhaps selfish may perceive that the right thing to do is to continue to act selfishly. Whereas 
if they had, you know, more socialization, if they were differently uh, enabled or ennobled by a group, they might look and go, ah, being selfish isn't the collectively objective right thing to do, but they don't need to be told to do it in either case, if that makes sense. More common, especially early on in first act high fantasy stories, we're dealing with external motivations because external motivations are generally created by an author trying to make up something and show off how clever they are. If just so that we're clear, uh, if you're a writer who constantly keeps inventing new things, it's going to come across as desperate because really you're just... All, rather than solving a problem that you've created, you are just adding more material, which doesn't necessarily solve the problem. It just comes across as like, hey, do you like this? Well, what about this? I'm going to throw this at the wall too. And what about this? And what about this? And what about this? You're not solving any problems that way. You're just desperate for someone to pay attention to you, which is never a good position to try to sell a book in. But external motivation is the most common problem. There's nothing wrong with external motivation, but to be solely reliant on having somebody who isn't the character telling you what to do, dictating what to do, explaining why, giving the, giving the character a compelling reason, after a while, that external motivation is going to seem really thin or flat. Because let's suppose, um, let's just make up an example. Let's suppose... Uh, a king informs their best knight that what they need to do right now is get on a horse and ride all the way across the continent to see the king's brother and retrieve an item and ride back as quickly as possible. That is an external motivation. If it is a long enough ride and we detail that ride as we go, it is entirely reasonable that along the way from where we start to where we're going, this character is going to find some distractions, some problems, some subplots, some other adventure. It's not necessarily going to be a straight line from where we were to where we are and back. And along that way, all the things that happen because it's external motivation, we are supposed to believe that that compulsion to do what the King says and go, you know, all the way across the continent and back. Just the idea that the king said it is enough for the character to make a difference. Like, oh, right, yes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna never doubt my, you know, the the intelligence of this journey. I'm never gonna question it. I'm never gonna say this is a stupid fucking idea. I'm just gonna be like, the king told me to do it. I gotta do it. I never doubt it. I never question it. I never feel like it's a bad idea. I just do it. Agree with it the same way I know the sky is a certain color or that water makes things wet. I just go. External motivation has its limits. Likewise, external motivation creates for the character something that they just have to accept or take on. It attaches burden. Now, that's not necessarily a bad idea, depending on what that burden is or how they feel about the burden. But you can't get to how do I feel about the burden without going back to the internal motivation to say, here's how the character feels about a certain thing. For instance, if we have the uh, external motivation of take this child from here to there because they are the chosen one and keep them safe. If that is our external motivation, our feeling toward that child 
uh, as the character, I should say. The character's feeling toward the child and the character's acceptance, reluctance, eagerness, or whatever to handle this job, whatever it might be, doesn't stem from the fact that, you know, the king, the emperor, whomever gave us this job. It comes down to how the character feels about children, which is internal. Keep an eye on what you are saying motivates your characters. Be willing to question that motivation over time. Be willing to look at it and go, yeah, the only reason this character is doing it is because the king said so. Well, that was like 45 chapters ago. How have we not stopped and questioned this? How have we not done more than just been like, yes, king, I'm doing it. Nod, smile, go out the door. Always look at motivation. Why is the character going to do? Why is the character doing? Why will the character do whatever? At whatever depth of story, whether we're talking about the scene, the chapter, the, the whole book, anything. Always look at motivation in high fantasy. And if you can't easily identify it, that is definitely a red flag. And if when you do identify it, more often than not, it boils down to the idea of, well, somebody else just told them to do it. Or the blanket statement of they just do it because that's the kind of person they are. Oh my God, I can't begin to describe the size of the yawn. I'm yawning and the, the, the speed at which I want to yeet the manuscript away from me. Because those are very unexplored and dull spaces. Those are not fundamentally curious spaces for high fantasy. Sure, the king told you. Okay, because they're just a paladin and they... Uh, okay, how many more cookie cutter widgets can we stamp out of this factory? You've got to be willing to say something because of all the flavors of fantasy, it is high fantasy that is the most, what's the word I want to use? Not naked because I don't mean it in a brazen way, but most transparent in its themes. And the vast majority of rejection in high fantasy takes place because writers love to demonstrate that they've been creative, but they have not demonstrated that they've got something to say, whether that's exploring emotionality, whether that's having something to say about a particular view or concept. They're just not saying things, although they are very good at writing things. And that is... I think the most significant high fantasy stumbling block. But maybe there's another one we could think of when we look at what the character does. We've already talked a minute ago about why they're doing what they're doing, but now we're going to talk about how, how they're going to do this. So the king told them what to do. Okay, fine. For a minute, let's put that off to the side. How are they going to do it? There are two dangers we are going to really, really like shake a stick at here. One is called hyper-competence, and one is hyper-equipment. Hyper-competence is the idea that your character, whomever they are, whether they're the wizard, whether they're uh, a demigod who can transform their body, whether they're an angel, whether they're a fill-in-the-blank, hyper-competence means that over time or for reasons, fill-in-the-blank, whether that's infinite wealth, infinite age, super beauty, magic power, whatever, uh, hypercompetence means that they are always good at everything they do. That is, I, I can't press this button enough 
to tell you how many rejections you'll get. Hypercompetence will kill your story. Hypercompetence will just kill you because hypercompetence, much like ultimate, you know, unending super wealth and ultimate immortality, you can't die, you're, you just live forever. All of those things eliminate challenge. Hypercompetence generally is written out by authors who don't want their characters to struggle because they've misunderstood what makes a character doing stuff cool. I'll explain. When a character does something, doesn't matter what it is, pick a lock, shoot a fireball, split an arrow in twain, what the hell ever. It's not the act alone in a vacuum that's the cool thing. It's nice that they accomplished it. Hooray, good for them, have a cookie. Where the cool thing happened was that there was a possibility or a chance that it wouldn't work. That's what makes the actual accomplishment rather than the skill itself more important. The reason why we're like, holy shit, he split the arrow in twain is because there was a chance he wouldn't. And depending on how we scale Robin Hood up or down in terms of his archery, whether we give him depth, whether we normalize archery, whether we you know, do all kinds of other story things, hypercompetence makes stuff less interesting because it puts the focus on the wrong element in a challenge. Competence is fine. Hypercompetence, not so fine because it eliminates risk. And if you are unwilling to risk your character, if you are unwilling to let your character fail, and not just like fail one time in the book because you're aiming for like a big kind of moment, I mean like a consistent level that your character is imperfect. If you are unwilling to do that, I need you to listen to me very, very carefully. In fact, I'm going to get right up on this microphone so you can definitely hear me. If you are not risking your character, your book sucks. Okay, is that is that clear enough for you? I'll, I'll take it a step further if you want to go into happy controversy land. If you're not risking your character and your character doesn't have the ability to fail and deal with the consequences, not only does your book suck, your writing is in serious need of overhaul. Please, please rewind this 10 seconds on the podcast player of your choice and listen to that a few more times. You need to risk things. You have to stop writing only perfect things. Hypercompetence will kill you because at the end of the day, no one's going to give a shit. And the thing you want to do most in this whole wide world is give a shit and have your people, your reader, your community, your whatevers give a shit. Hypercompetence yanks that away. Don't do it. Likewise, its companion is hyper equipment. Hyper equipment is like hypercompetence, but it's centered around possession or element. Batman in the 60s was hyper-equipped. There's a bat computer. There's a bat this. There's a bat that. There's a bat shark repellent. Why is hyper-equipment not the best strategy either? Because that way there's no sense of possible risk. See a pattern here? Without the risk, without the danger, there's no way to set stakes or challenge in a scene. 
or make a goal sound like it's dangerous or make a bad guy sound tough. Because if I can just always go for my utility belt, or if I can always search through my grimoire and find a spell, or if I can always, you know, find the right runes to rune at or something, if there is always the right tool at hand or nearby at hand, like I can just quest over here and pick this thing up, if I can always be equipped and equipped in order to solve the problem, then it's never really a problem because I'll just have a solution for it. Hyper-equipment reduces challenge. Hyper-competence reduces challenge. Reducing challenge stalls character development because nothing's hard for them. They don't have to work very hard. If I always, you know, oh, here's a pen. Oh, look, I need a quarter. Hey, there's a quarter. Oh, I, I need those keys. Oh, you mean these keys? If there's never any risk... I don't have to work very hard. And if I, the character, don't have to work very hard, then the reader reading my story doesn't have to care so much because I'm never really in any danger. There's never really any threat. The reader doesn't have to read so critically or seriously or intently. And then the reader will just be like, eh, this book kind of sucks. Because it does suck. Because your writing sucks. Because you're not challenging your characters. Your reader lives their life in such a way where there are things that challenge them. Your reader exists in a space where things are hard for them. Your reader looks to your work, yes, to possibly escape those difficulties, but they are not looking for such a patronizing view of that escapism that you have to write a world where these other made-up people have no challenge or no difficulty whatsoever. That's too unrealistic. That's some cowardly, desperate writing, and you deserve better, your book deserves better, and your reader deserves better. So I will say this, the amount of skills or experiences or the amount of proficiency, how good a character is at a thing, should never reduce an action beat or accomplishment. It should never make a thing not a threat. Everything should be a problem. Now, it's not always going to be a giant problem. Not everything is going to be like a, a maximum on the danger scale. But there should always be a chance of things not working. There should always be a chance that things will go in an unexpected way, maybe even including failure. It has to be realistic on that level if you want your reader to stay engaged. This is also really, really good advice for those people outside the fantasy genre. Because... Even if we don't, if we're not talking superpowers, even if we're just talking about people in relationship in a romance novel, or we're talking about a detective seeking clues, or we're talking about uh, a drama where somebody's trying to figure out the right thing to say, hypercompetence, hyper equipment, and the reduction of threat stalls your story out. Be careful with your skills. Error and failure are your friends. Now I want to move from high fantasy to urban fantasy. Urban fantasy is the second most popular flavor of fantasy. Uh, it is currently dominated by a flavor of urban fantasy called detective or crime urban fantasy. And that's not necessarily bad, but urban fantasy is potentially much bigger than that. Even though that's the popular stuff, it doesn't mean you have to do that in order to move forward. Urban fantasy does not necessarily have to be modern. Meaning, modern in this context means uh, anything from our Earth from about 1950 forward 
suburban life, jobs, office buildings, all the way up to the modern day. Then, you know, go from like the nuclear age to, you know, the computer age to the information age and beyond does not have to be modern. It does not have to be hyper fantastic, meaning you don't have to go out of your way to justify that, you know, we're telling a 1970s stagflation story, but oh, by the way, there are dwarves. You don't have to go out of your way to kind of shoehorn in the fae or like make a compelling argument that there are demons that we have to fight. You don't have to do that to make urban fantasy urban fantasy. And it does not have to be a crime fiction. We don't need a detective solving cases. Yes, that is a very common entry point because that way we have a character who's got a job to do and we can side with them. We can immediately attach to them in the first person and it gives us a reason to move the plot forward in, a, in an expected mystery format way. You don't need to. All you need, all urban fantasy needs is a city, however you want to define a city, as a centerpiece or feature of the story. So if this is a, um, a medieval city, great. If this is a, an underground series of caves and a low magic society of, of fearful people, sure, let's do it. Is it, you know, a domed city, you know, on on the third planet around the, the moon or whatever? Sure, let's go. Urban fantasy features a city. Now, a lot of readers, a lot of influencers will take that to mean the city has to feel like a character. And I want to address that for a minute because that is that is a very tired talking point. When the city is a character, it means you've developed the city beyond the point where it's just, here are five locations in the city. You've, and, and here, you know, this one has beige walls, and this one has, you know, ceiling fans, and this one has carpet. That's not making the city a character. It's understanding that every city, anywhere, whether they're made up or realistic, every city has an atmosphere and a vibe. Some cities are hectic, some cities are sterile, some cities are scorched and tired and desperate and dying and vibrant and sexy and confused and shallow and a million different ways we can describe how a city feels to the people who regularly live there as well as the people who are just sort of tourists there. How a city feels and your ability to put it into more than just one word that you beat over the head over and over with. Ah, the city is vibrant. The city is vibrant. The city is vibrant. Do better than just one word. Make the city feel like the reader could be either a tourist if they wanted to be or a regular member of the community. That's how you make a city feel like a character. That's how you make the city of the story feel lived in. You describe it beyond just locations and structures and geography and cartography. This is going to usually center, urban fantasy usually centers around one character, a main protagonist called a primary protagonist or a primary character with a number of secondary characters, sidekicks, love interests, um, assistants, Friends who owe him a favor. Friends he owes favors to. It's one person and the world that orbits around them. Maybe two people and the world that orbit around them. And it's usually through that those connections, that web of secondary, oh, by the way, I know a guy kind of vibe, that the reader comes to know the main character. But it is not always that. That's why it's usually rather than definitely. 
urban fantasy functions in a number of different ways. But my concern from a submission standpoint is that way too many people look and see what's popular. Detectives of some kind, crime solvers of one kind, whether that's, you know, Toby Day or Harry Dresden or anything in between. And doesn't they don't leave room to explore anything beyond that. And you should. There is no reason why you couldn't tell Aladdin as an urban fantasy story. No reason at all. There's no reason why you couldn't tell Dune as an urban fantasy if you just, I don't know, make it more about a city, like a, the, the city of the, the Freeman, as opposed to like just big-ass Dunes, for lack of a better way to say it. Urban fantasy is incredibly versatile in the same way that high fantasy can be versatile. It just requires you to think beyond and around what everybody else is doing. Let's tackle some urban fantasy weak points. Hey, look at that. We're back at character motivation. Oh, man. Only now we've changed a few things. We still have internal and external motivation. We can never escape that. But we're going to change a few factors for urban fantasy. We still get a sense in the internals that a character thinks, believes, and feels a certain way. They have a moral code. That's a fundamental thing in all character development. You're not really going to get away from that. But now we're going to change a few factors. Like... What's motivating the character to do X? It was something the character was going to do already. Why? Why does this come up in urban fantasy and not high fantasy? There's a couple reasons. Generally, urban fantasy is thought to have a different, slightly harder tone or edge than high fantasy does. There's a little less hope in urban fantasy sort of broadly. Cities feel more claustrophobic. Stories seem a little harder. Things seem a little tougher. It's not necessarily easy. It's not necessarily clean. I'm making air quotes. And that that's usually one of the catch-alls authors use to make the cities feel lived in. They make them tough and messy as opposed to the wide open spaces of, you know, fantasy New Zealand or something. So by compelling a character who to already have a life and already have things going on and make them feel like they've got stuff in the city ongoing, then, yeah, we can kind of hand wave some of the internals for a character by just saying, yeah, I was going to do it anyway, so I might as well just keep doing it. Uh, I was, I was going to make sure I walk old ladies across the street, so I'll just go over here and walk these old ladies across the street. Additionally, the way we're going to expand this is by making the, the motivating factor something the character can't ignore. This is a particularly useful tool for those crime fiction and detective urban fantasy people who encounter a problem, you know, not in their office, not a case brought to them, but it's something they encountered and they've tried to shrug off. They've been like, oh, well, you know, the, the, the police, all cops are bastards, will, uh, will resolve that problem. That's somebody else's problem, but they can't shake it. And so because they think or feel or believe something, and this is something they can't ignore, then they are driven to go handle whatever the problem is. Things change also on the external side because urban fantasy motivation is generally dictated to the character. Opportunity goes to the character rather than the character going to the opportunity. So especially in detective urban fantasy, somebody brings them a case. I want to hire you, says the client in the office kind of vibe. I want to, you know, tell you what's going on. Hey, there's a 
a sword and the stone that you should get. Hey, you should try to steal the princess's jewels. Something, someone or somebody else tells them. They find a prophecy. They find an object. They find a person. Somebody who isn't them sets them on the path of what to do. Whether that's an info dump or whether that's a, a single plot hook, that's variable depending on the story. But it comes from somebody who isn't them. And usually the best way to ensure that the plot stays moving, because if you always have to wait for something external to kick you in the ass to get you moving on your plot, we add a complication by, you know, giving the reason, giving the character, I should say, giving the character a reason to keep going. Like we, they were hired to do this and they need money or they were forced to do it because of threat to something else. This coercion keeps the story on the rails. This coercion keeps the story moving. So even when it stalls or the character kind of just, you know, twiddles their thumbs and treads water, there's still a reason to get things back on track. It's not necessarily a bad thing to have those things happen, but it can be, it can get a little lazy if we are yet again, always forcing the character to do something because yet another person's threatening their grandma. I mean, after a while, like 11 people are going to threaten grandma. Really? Really? We start straining credulity at that point. You don't always have to externally compel or force the character. You can also internally compel the character because this is the sort of person they are. Whether they're, you know, a thief with a heart of gold or whether they're the hard-nosed detective who's really a softy or whether they're somebody just trying to atone for past sins or anything like that. There's something motivating a character. Find out what the fuck it is and put it front and center in nearly every instance where the character is doing something. On we go. So let's take us back here to skills. Because yet again, we're talking skills and we still face the same two problems we had before. Hyper-competence and hyper-equipment. Same problems exist. Everybody's too good at stuff. Everybody's too well armed for stuff. I have, a, I have a tool for this job. I have a spell for this job. I know exactly who to talk to. There's no risk. There's no danger because I know what to expect and what I'm looking for. But urban fantasy is wired differently because urban fantasy says that skills are there to assist plot. And that's a danger. That's one of these. That's a red flag because if skills are in service of plot ahead of character, that skill is going to appear like it's just there to do the plot. Why do I have this ability? Plot reasons. But if, we, if my skills are in service of my character development, if I do what I do because of who I am and the plot is just like, well, this shit is just what we're doing on a Thursday, then the skill is not there just for the plot. And it gives the skill a bit more context and it gives the character a bit more depth, which is what we're going for. Shall we keep going? Onto modern fantasy, our third of three fantasy genre. Modern fantasy is the third most common genre. It is uh, growing in popularity. I don't know if it'll overtake urban fantasy. It might just be, you know, twinsies tied for second place. But modern fantasy is quickly up and coming, especially with the more recent inclusion of magical realism into modern fantasy, um, uh, a general industry move I don't know if I agree with, but modern fantasy is growing. Modern fantasy 
is, you know, a mixed bag, let's say. Modern fantasy does not have to be current modern, much like urban fantasy. We can take anywhere from the last century or so and and shape out what modern is or isn't. It doesn't have to be hyper-fantastic. We still don't have to shoehorn the damn elves anywhere. Nor does this have to be reskinned high fantasy. Like, there are still adventuring parties and quests and wizards, only now people are wearing hoodies and jeans and they're, they're meeting up at Starbucks instead of the tavern. You don't have to take your high fantasy story and just put somebody in a pair of chucks. You can, you can shape modern fantasy in a lot of different ways. The key for modern fantasy to get you out of the slush pile and to get you away from rejections is to understand that modern fantasy takes modern life situations, locations, and experiences and grounds them in real life. It might have magic, it might have technology, but it is trying to mirror modern life of the reader while also attaching to it a fantastic story. So yeah, it's the story of soccer moms and people losing their jobs and kids trying to find work and survive school and the prom and all that. But also there are dragons and big giant, you know, roving packs of werewolves. Modern fantasy out of all these kinds of fantasy is the most variable. It contains the most utility because as long as you are mirroring those real life situations, locations and experiences, you can do damn near anything. You can take this into romantic territory. You can take this into, you know, gothic horror territory. You can do a lot of shit. You want to have a sewer clown where you have to have an orgy in order to survive? Awesome. Let's go. You want to turn this into a small, you know, southern town where a waitress falls in love with apparently every single supernatural creature in existence? Let's do it. You can take modern fantasy in loads of different ways. And much like urban fantasy, it's going to be a single protagonist with a whole bunch of orbiters, a whole bunch of secondary characters, friends, info dumps, sages, teachers, aides, whatevers. It's going to be one person and the world revolving around them. Usually more so than urban fantasy, it's a single person with a whole lot circling as opposed to one or two people in urban fantasy. You want to ground modern fantasy wherever possible. On we go. Modern fantasy motivation. Well, we're still going to use a lot of the same stuff for our internal motivations. It's still going to be thinking, believing, and feeling the character's pre-existing moral code. But we're going to expand in a couple different ways. Because we're going to give our character a pre-existing problem. Now, the severity or intensity of that problem is pretty subjective. I'm not saying that everybody needs to be, you know... Uh, a high-functioning drug addict or something. It can just be that the character has a problem. Their, you know, their boyfriend just left them. Or they're questioning their sexual identity. Or they just got fired. Or they need to figure out a way to have their mom keep the house. There's a pre-existing problem that exists prior to the start of the story, and it will be an influencing factor in how they handle this plot. The other thing modern fantasy does in an effort to stay grounded is that it lets this character, more so than urban fantasy, 
take note of the inaction by other people. So if we go back to our example of the characters motivated to have mom keep the house, the inaction of the bank to cut them a deal, the inaction of people to be more lenient, that inaction of others compels the character to action. And the compulsion to action comes from, we're going back to the internals, something the character thinks, believes, or feels. It creates a tighter internal core to drive our characters. But let's come over here to the external side of the board. Because, well, we still have somebody coming along and saying, hey, do this. We've had that throughout the majority of external fantasy motivation. It's still true here, too. Only now, modern fantasy is going to account for some world building that there are rules in place that compel or encourage the character to do the right thing. There are a series of laws in the hidden supernatural world that lead this character either by following the rules or breaking the rules to do the right thing. There are a set of rules, codified or not, social contract or not, where the character has an opportunity to do the plot or do X, whatever X is. Modern fantasy best incorporates the world, and it works best when that world and those rules are not disproportionate or disconnected from the experience of the characters. Like, all of a sudden, if you have characters, let's just make something up here. How about we have a character who goes to... Um, goes to their best friend's birthday party. And in the course of that birthday party, they suddenly discover that at the back room of this bar, there's this hidden staircase that leads down into a subterranean world of fantasy creatures who are having some kind of like, I don't know, illegal, Ill illegal? That's a word I was going to go with. Illegal poker casino, like underground gambling and fight club kind of vibe. And... Normally, the rest of the world, one of the rules here is that uh, non-magical people can't see the magical world, not without some kind of special hookup. But our character, unfettered by anything, can see them. So there is a rule in place that compels the character to do the right thing, to get more involved, to take action, to do whatever. Because holy shit, our protagonist, who's just here for a birthday party, can see the the gnomes over there, you know, double dealing in dominoes. Your external motivations allow other factors outside the character to attach, to get involved, to take action, to do something. It helps overall engagement. Back to skills. Now, stop me if you've heard this before. Hypercompetence and hyper-equipment are still major problems. They are problems in every flavor of fantasy in particular because people are unwilling to take risks or come up with not clever, not immediate solutions. However, in modern fantasy, the major problem, one of the biggest rejection causers, or the causes of rejection, I should say, are that skills are... The skill is less important than what the skill does. The fact that I can do a thing is less important than the outcome. And this often gets shorthanded to what gets done is less important than why it needs to be done. Oh, I can do brain surgery because we need brain surgery done. Not the intricacy of brain surgery. That's secondary. Oh, I can attach a limb. I can save this person's life. I can perform this highly technical math the why becomes way more important. We need it done because that why is most often 
the plot. If we don't do it, the plot stops. That's not good. If, if you drive your story to the point where it bottlenecks, I don't care if it bottlenecks on page one. If you drive your story to the point where it bottlenecks, because the only way we can go forward is to have this event happen, this skill, this whatever, you've eliminated a whole lot of flexibility out of your story and you've slowed everything else down to a crawl. For instance, if you have a, a character who desperately needs to like learn how to shoot fireballs because that's a cool thing you need them to do in the climax of the story in 100 pages or so, then everything stops and we stop paying attention to anything else so that you can have a number of scenes, training montages, whatevers, so that the character can master fire. It's not bad or wrong that they have to master fire. The problem is that we spend only the time and space mastering fire and that they do it too quickly because that's just hyper-competence. Be careful with how you deploy your skills. Be careful with how well it goes, how consistently it always goes, and when they use them. If a skill can always be used to get out of a problem, you don't have a problem. On we go. Let's play a game show. Let's take a look at one of the big fundamental issues here called competence or challenge. This is something we've been building up to over the course of our previous discussion in the last hour. I'm going to get a mouthful of water. Just hang on. Okay, I lied. It was a mouthful of tea. It's delicious. Let's go. Competence or challenge? Competence or challenge is the question we ask about how hard or easy is it for a character to do X? You've got to ask what kind of tea, chat. Uh, this is Irish. Uh, this is Barry's Irish. Uh, it's is very good. It's strong as hell. I need it. Um, it helps. Competence or challenge. How hard or easy is it for a character to do X, and how does doing X affect consequences? And we divide this into four boxes. It's a nice chart. We have the stuff that's easy and no challenge, which we could summarize as, this isn't a problem for me. Just give me, give me a second. This has no tension, and it's not really worth mentioning, and the only thing expended is time. Just give me a second. Tap, tap, tap. I'm done. Two sentences, three sentences, however many sentences. There's no real problem. We blink and it's done. Snap of the fingers. Maybe we drop down to it's difficult, but not a challenge, but there's no challenge coming, meaning it's hard to do, but without interruption, without problem, we'll get it done. I need to concentrate, just hang on. That's how you, you, short, you shorthand that. The issue here is that there's some static tension with the situation, like there's a chance I could screw this up, but there's no threat. There's no like animal coming to gnaw off my face. There's no big problem. It's just, I just need to focus on this. I need to, it's difficult to do, but I can do it. But when we start adding challenge to things, when we start adding external threats, when we start adding some kind of difficulty, when we start adding more than just failure as a chance, things get more variable and things get interesting. An easy thing with a challenge 
is something that we could normally do and it'd be a lot easier to do if we didn't have this external threat or this internal threat. Like, this would be a lot easier if this guy wasn't trying to eat my face. I'm trying to pick this lock, but here comes, you know, this animal charging at me. This gives us variable tension. We can escalate it. We can draw it out. We can slow it down. We can speed things up. We have a lot of sliders and bells and whistles we can modify for this. Easy with a challenge is often a lot of people's refuge in competence or challenge situations because they don't want to risk too much, but they want to give the impression that there's some kind of threat to it. And for a lot of people, this seems to be a middle ground because, hey, there's a challenge. There's that, there's that animal coming to eat the guy's face or whatever. So it's, you know, hard. It's not hard. You're comparing two things incorrectly. You are comparing the difficulty of the action with the situation. And those are two different things. Because if we change one and not the other, what kind of challenge do we have? If we take away the animal coming to gnaw your face off and the thing you're doing is very simple, it's not really worth mentioning. But if we keep the animal trying to gnaw your face off and we don't necessarily make it easy, then we get interesting. Then things get exciting because all of a sudden you get a lot of variability. And when we take a difficult thing, a flat-out difficult thing, and we add external or internal challenge, we not only create variable tension, but we can escalate danger. For instance, a character has been poisoned and only has until sunset to survive, and they've got to do a series of nearly impossible things in order to earn their cure. And we can shorthand difficult with challenge down to, I have no idea how I'm going to do this. The absolute absence of competence the maximum amount the sorry I'll say that one more time the maximum amount of risk gives us a real shot at creating danger tension stakes pacing issues whatever to really help move things forward competence or challenge is a huge deal on we go now we're going to talk about how the world works because if you're really looking to get rejected in fantasy, well, we better go look at how world building happens. Also, can I just point out, I really like this graphic. I think it's cool. I worked hard on it. First thing we're going to talk about are the rules of the world. I should probably do a whole like stream on just world building just in general and include some of this stuff. Because world building, I think, needs... What's the word I want to use? It needs better treatment. We should give a shit more about world building. So the world has rules. Loads of different kinds of rules. From great to small, big and little, involving big groups and individuals. The rules of the world create the story's needs and goals and obstacles. The reason why the world is the way the world is is because of its rules. That doesn't mean like societal laws, though those are rules. It could be anything from like physics and stuff. It could be the way wealth inequality or racism or sexism or the rules of magic or the, you know, the decisions of the council or, you know, whatever kind of stuff. What you want to do to sort your world rules out is list them, starting from the biggest, global, all the way down to 
environmental, societal, and personal. So we start at the biggest rules possible. And they're going to be stuff like physics and gravity. And yeah, a lot of people shorthand this too. It's like Earth. But I would think it'd be more beneficial for you to sit down and really map it out. What are the global rules? Breathable atmosphere. Really sit down and think about it. No, you don't have to account for everything all at once. That would be ridiculous. But you at least have to be able to blanket or, or quickly make a snap judgment to understand things. Then you have environmental rules like biomes. Like this part of the world lives in this climate. That part of the world lives in that climate. Or this society lives here and that society lives there. And their geography and their composition afford them differences. There are sociological, societal, anthropological, archaeological differences, whatever they might be. Your environmental stuff aren't necessarily the same rules as global, like physics and gravity and stuff, but the environmental rules start shaping the big pictures. Kingdoms the size of continents, or the kingdom is only as big as the valley, or Simba, your kingdom is wherever the light touches. Environmental. Societal rules are a step down. Now we're becoming more person-based because now we're going to deal with the way societies operate, the kingdom, the city, the village, things like wealth, class, gender, species, power dynamics of all different kinds fall under societal rules. Rules like you have to be this many years old to apprentice. Only certain kinds of people can apprentice. There's a caste system, gender discrimination, sexual orientation discrimination, different kinds of phobias or mistrusts, racism, bigotry, intolerance, um, but also positive things like the fact that there's mass transit or the fact that there's you know potable water. Societal rules cover a lot. Don't just read this as only the negative stuff. Often the negative stuff comes up because that's how we make plots for a lot of things, but societal rules also include the positives. And then lastly, the most intimate level of rule for world building is the personal. And the personal rules govern how does a person live in this world? If I were uh, a Cooper's apprentice in your high fantasy world, how would I exist? Do I get paid? Do I just you know, get f paid in potatoes and that's how I survive? Is this a, a world where a Cooper and a wheelwright can dominate because we just started doing trade with the kingdom on the other side of the river? How does a person live in this world? Ask yourself this question a disgusting number of times. It will absolutely help. And that's true even outside fantasy as a genre. How does a person live in this world? On we go. So we had world rules, and because those rules exist, we get tension. Because wherever there are rules, there will be tension. Because no world exists in a frictionless utopia. There are tensions of all different kinds. They scale, they're messy, they're dangerous, they're tough. It's difficult. So the tension comes from a combination of expectation and action, or expectation and inaction, or a want or a wish for difference. Now, whether or not that change is possible or that change is going to happen or that change is being prohibited, whatever. It's the idea that there is a way things are and a way things could, would, or should be, and the, the, the disconnect between the two creates tension. 
you want to you want to live in that tension space. Your story is going to exist in that tension. Oh no, Mario, our princess has been kidnapped and we need the princess cuz she's sort of in charge of the little mushroom people. That's some tension. We want tension. Look for the spots where you can create tension because those rules form seams, gaps, problems, issues, hiccups, weak spots in the fences for the raptors to test. Where, where is the tension in your world? Not just where is the tension in the plot? Like this is a story of three punks who overturn the fascist government. That's good. And that's obvious tension, but we want to find other tensions like, do they have secret identities that they have to hide from their parents? Do they have to, you know, pretend to pay attention in school, even though they spend all night fighting crime? Where are your seams? Where are the spots where you can create conflict, tension, something dynamic, create risk, create a challenge? And with all these problems, whatever they might be, with all this tension, how does the world continue to function? Let's suppose you lived in a hyper-capitalist, um, hyper-oligarchic corporate society where you were being bombarded with not only information but disinformation, and you were constantly being told to, that you had to commodify in order to exist, while wealth inequality and systemic racism and intolerance of others fractured society. Let's just suppose you lived in a world like that. How would you function? Remember our question from the, from the previous thing? How does a person live in this world? How does a person live in this world and how does the world keep functioning? This is, they're not necessarily the flip side, but they're two parts of the same question. Because how does a character live like this? And how does the world keep going without like collapsing into critically necessary civil war? Hmm, I wonder. I wonder. On we go. So there's tension and there are rules. But because there's tension and because there's rules, there's opportunity. We like opportunity. Opportunity is where story happens. So there's opportunity for character to do stuff. Now, some of those opportunities might not be universally available because of societal rules or just op just means or advantage or privilege or whatever. But there's going to be some opportunity that exists for the character to take action. Why? Because that's where the plot is. Because that's what the story is. This opportunity allows the character to have a non-static position, meaning they get to do stuff. That matters. You want to find those opportunities and take it and have the characters take advantage of them. Now, maybe those opportunities are something big, like they need a uh, you need a burglar to go steal a gem from a dragon. Maybe the opportunity is something like I'm the only one in the city who saw the murder, so I'm the only one who has to you know tell everybody what's going on. Or I'm the illegitimate son of the, the, the king and I have to go take my rightful place on the throne. Something like that. I'm the only one who can wield the hammer. Find those opportunities. Find that availability, even if it's by circumstance. Because that's where you're going to get story opportunity. That's where you're going to get story growth. It's not enough just to have your characters do stuff because they like doing stuff. Find opportunity and take advantage of it. On we go. 
on to plots. Because as if we haven't covered enough, somehow we're still going. Somehow we're still going. Another mouthful of water. Well, should I grab the water? Yeah, let's do water this time. God, that's good. Okay. Plot. When we talk about plot and we talk about plot in fantasy novels, we are dealing with two general kinds of plot structure, linear and nonlinear. This is also true for a lot of other genres, but it's very true in fantasy because fantasy kind of gets transparent at this level. A linear plot advances with hierarchical consequences towards a specific goal. Think of a staircase. We go here and do something, and then we go up the next step, and then up the next step, and so on and so forth. Point A to point B, along the way, we deal with stuff as it comes up, and by the time we get to where we end up, we are not the same, not in the same place and not really the same people that we were when we started. We've moved linearly, and we've had consequences, and the goal has never changed. We wanted to get from A to B. We always wanted to get to B. That's linear. The majority of stories you're going to encounter are linear, and that's totally super duper fine. However, some people take it on themselves for any number of reasons to be like, ah, linear is dull as shit. I don't want to be like everybody else. I'm going to be special. So they decide to go non-linear. Non-linear plot advances not hierarchically, but because of consequence. I've done a thing, so now the consequence is over here. Like, I run a red light, and in running a red light, a car honks its horn. And because a car honks its horn, someone is startled, and they drop their dozen eggs. And because they drop their dozen eggs, they can't make the cake for their anniversary. And because they can't make a cake for their anniversary, they disappoint their spouse. And because they disappoint their spouse, their fraying marriage collapses. It's not necessarily all hierarchical because the guy running the red light isn't the one who broke up the marriage. But we've moved because of consequences, not necessarily towards a single goal. Lots of actions stack in a lot of different ways, not necessarily always in the same direction. Think about a road with a couple different offshoots. Now, nonlinear stories tend to progress slower because for some reason, I don't know why, some writers decide they want to explore every single path to every single degree to the best they can. No, I don't know why. They just do. It's not great. But they do it anyway. Do you want to write nonlinearly? Sure. Go ahead. It's not automatically wrong or bad. Just know that you're losing a thing that's going to help keep you organized. A lot of writers, when they jump into fantasy especially, get disorganized very quickly because they make everything too big. Too many characters, the stakes are too high, the challenge is too high, or the challenge is too low, and there's just too much shit going on, and the reasons for it are unclear because there's just too many moving parts. And that's often because the writer is really, really trying really, really hard to show off how clever they were. Look at me and how much I created. And that's fine when we're like eight and we want some praise because we were playing with our toys on the carpet. And that's something fundamentally very different from somebody who's like, I'm making art and I'm trying to affect you on an emotional level. We still want validation, but now we're going deeper. Now we're going to try something else about it. 
Nonlinear is not wrong, but it's riskier. Linear story structure gives you a chance to move things along. Linear story structure gives you a chance to, you know, when you get stuck, remember that you're going from A to B. It can be really, really helpful, especially when you're still trying to figure out things like voice and pacing and tone. You can really help yourself succeed by picking a plot structure that is conducive for what you are trying to do. It's not necessarily a difficult decision. Pick one and figure it out. On we go. High fantasy in particular does this, but there's a thing called an object-oriented plot. Like, we have to take a ring to a volcano, or we have to pull a sword from a stone. There's always an object, and the plot is built around it. And this object, whether it's the Ark of the Covenant, or the Magic Cup, or the Spear and Magic Helmet, or the whatever it is, it's in a, it, that this object is at the heart of the story, and it has to be possessed. Somebody has to have it, and somebody else can't have it. It has to be used to do a thing. It has to be destroyed so no one can use it to do a thing or at least has to be guarded or protected from other people who could, you know, we have to make sure that nobody gets through the sealed tomb of who the fuck ever. Object-oriented plots have inherent limitations. Like, you can't really deviate from it because all of a sudden, the minute you start talking about not the object, the story feels very foreign and very slow. Here's an example, hypothetically. Let's suppose we're telling Lord of the Rings. We're talking about the ring getting the ring to Mordor, right? That's our big story. And the fellowship breaks up and everybody runs off because the orcs thought they grabbed the two right hobbits and they didn't. And everybody else just wants to go fight the army of the evil guys, providing cover for the people dropping the ring off. If all of a sudden, in the course of dropping the ring in the volcano or marching to the volcano to do it, we suddenly had like a lengthy 30-page discussion about, I don't know, four guys who wanted to like have a boat race. We've deviated so far from the object. We've, you know... Why, if the fellowship starts like a hundred pages in, do we then like take a hard detour with Tom Bombadil? When you deviate from the object-oriented plot, the story feels like it comes off the rails. Hint, it's because it comes off the rails. You don't always have to do an object-oriented plot, but it's super helpful to do an object-oriented plot, especially in cases where you want to show the expanse or scope of something. Because if we've got a simple thing to do, take this object from here to there or go over there and pick this thing up and bring it back, then once that's out of the way and the plot's been simplified down to that and we can just stay focused on it, we can go anywhere and do anything so long as we continue to try and do this thing. Object-oriented plots are not necessarily always bad. They can be fantastically done. But the danger is that everybody and their mother is going to do one. Tread carefully. On we go. One of our last points is called villain intersection. This... I've not seen this lead to a lot of rejection in fantasy novels. This is me bringing something to your awareness in case it becomes a thing people start talking about. I want to hedge a few bets for you. Villain intersection is the idea 
that there are points in the story where the villain's actions or the villain themselves has to come into contact with the carrot, the protagonist, or the protagonist's actions because of the plot. Remember, your antagonist, your villain, is trying to win, I'm making air quotes, by doing the plot. They want the ring, and they don't want it destroyed in a volcano. They want the sword and the stone so that they can evilly rule from the evil kingdom. They want to destroy He-Man and Eternia. They, they want to you know drink from the cup so that they can lead an eternal army of doom people. I don't know. They want to do the plot for their own selfish gains, whatever those might be. And their desires and their efforts have to, have to, in more than one spot, intersect with the protagonists doing whatever they're doing in, you know, as part of the plot. We're trying to destroy the ring. We're trying to have the ring. Immediately, there's an intersection. There have to be intersections. More than one intersection, ideally. If we can't let you have the arc, Renee, we're going to blow it up. Well, okay, but... Uh, blowing it up also kills you, Indiana Jones. Well, all right, fine, fair enough. Villain intersection allows you to have a natural way to bring the villain into the story and eliminates the big giant red flag of in a lot of fantasy novels of cutting away to the villain and showing the villain's point of view. Please stop doing that. It's time to let that go. It's time to move on past that. One of the reasons why that happens is because the author has this assumption that if they don't do it, the reader's not going to get whatever the hell they're talking about. This means they think the reader is stupid. This also means they think the reader hasn't read a lot of fantasy novels, and they think or have such a highly inflated opinion of themselves that they have to like explain things and only they can explain it to you because otherwise their genius would not be made apparent to you. You do not, there is no quiz, there is no final, there is no like completionist platinum trophy. You do not have to jump to your villain. You do not have to make them sympathetic. You do not have to have a moment where they're like, hi, evil sidekick, I, the villain, am going to explain the evil plot to you. No, you don't need to do any of that. The reader can figure out what the villain's plot is by seeing the consequences of it. So for instance, if your evil villain is trying to clear a path across the continent, we don't need to see the villain turn to the people and go, cut down these trees. We can just have the protagonists walk back up past a whole acre of stumps and we can put two and two together in our own brains and go, the villain must be tearing out the trees. Huh. Imagine that. Imagine trusting your reader enough that you don't have to stop and explain everything because you know the reader has read books before, because you know the reader has watched TV before, because the, you don't think the reader is an idiot. Amazing idea. Fascinating stuff. So, think of where your villain comes into the story, either directly, meaning they show up, or just like their actions have consequences that the, the protagonists engage with. Doing too many intersections too quickly with little buildup, just kind of leaning in for shock value, like every minute we turn around, here comes another villain, makes your villain, un makes your villain however they, many there are, super uninteresting. 
because you're forcing them down the reader's throat. Spacing out too few villain intersections make them seem like not a big threat. There is a sweet spot. How do we find this sweet spot? Figure out the points of intersection. Figure out why the point you say is a point is or isn't a point of intersection. Why are they doing that? Why is the villain acting this way? Why does the villain need to do this? And why is this, whatever they're doing, apparently and allegedly your best choice as the author? Why did you choose to have them do this thing? They could have done anything else. Why are they doing it this way? If the answer to those questions is, huh, I don't know. Try again. Try again. You should know you're making the story. A villain does things because they are trying to accomplish the plot. A villain does things because they have a goal, just like a protagonist has a goal. A villain's job is to oppose the protagonist. They happen to be doing that opposition because of and for the plot's ends. They want the plot. They want to have it happen. They don't want to have the good thing happen. They want to have their own consequence, whatever the shit it is. Why? Why this method? If our villain is trying to like clear a path across the continent, why are they not just flying over it? If our villain is trying to, you know, expand their hold in the city and they have to bulldoze the orphanage, why are they, you know, not just like buying the orphanage and levitating it with wizards? Why is the villain doing what they're doing? And when we figure that out, we can all then figure out, okay, so they're doing whatever they're doing and we know why they're doing it. When will they be doing some part of that? Because they're never going to do all of it at once. When are they going to do some part of that in the story? Well, they'll do a little bit here. And then five chapters later, they'll do a little bit there. And maybe like 15 chapters, they'll do a little bit more. And then we get to the climax, you know, three chapters after that. Figure out what they're doing. Figure out where in the story it's happening. If we're going linearly, every time the villain does something, we're basically moving hierarchically forward. There should be consequences and a, and a milestone. Yay, we did a thing. Hurrah, move forward. If we're going non-linearly, we want to think about consequences. Okay, the villain made this move on the chessboard of our proverbial story. What's our counter move? What's our response? Villains are going to make moves the characters don't entirely know. The villain is not waiting for the character to go first, nor are they waiting for the reader to read it. The villain's moving unseen. Uh, it's called hidden information. The villain makes moves off page. And it's only through villain intersection that we see some elements of the villain's plan. And then the reader and the characters have to sort of piece it together until we get to the climax and it becomes inevitable. Makes sense? A lot of what the villain does doesn't need to be written down because what is seen and what is done, you can put two and two together and work backwards and figure it out. I know that sounds hard. I know that sounds different than probably how you've approached story before, but I'm telling you, if you can do it that way, you're going to make your life a lot easier. And that's it. Are there any questions? I did nearly 90 minutes. I think that was even longer than the first fantasy stream we did. Holy shit. I got to drink more water. Any questions 
about anything. Oh, man. I'm still thinking about that world building stream. I well, honestly, what I might do, maybe I'll do it next week. I might stack both streams on the same night. Maybe. I know there will be two streams next week. I do not know when they'll be. Huh. Hmm. We'll see. I'll chew on it. You'd love a noir stream. Oh, man, I would love to do a noir stream. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to keep getting noir rolled out the door. I'm, I'm working really hard. There's a couple, bo there's, a, there's a box of books and bags that need to go out as soon as I get paid again. Um, I will happily do a noir stream. What kind of noir things would you like? Just like a general noir stream, like how to write noir? I would love to do that. Where's my notepad? Let's make some notes. So we've got world building stream on the list. And we've got noir on the list. Just whatever you're vibing. Oh man, I am I am vibing so many things. Woo! What makes it noir? Yeah, we can do that. We can super make that happen. Maybe we'll do that next week and we'll save world building for, for later in September. Hmm, that sounds good. Let's do that. Okay, any other questions? Absolutely. Anything? Else we will march on. I wonder what else is going on in the world. I wonder if there's such a thing as fantasy noir. Yes, there is fantasy noir. Uh, it is a thing, and, uh, you know, you, you could... Yeah, it's a thing. How would I change noir world now that it's out? What a great question. Um... I wouldn't do a physical release. Uh, I would have done entirely digital. And uh, I, would, I would clarify how I wrote a lot of the rules. I, I know what I want to say better now. Um, no, to preempt your question, there's not going to be a Noir World 2 uh, because produce, the, the production side of making a game uh, absolutely wrecked me. You like my author design notes. Thank you so much. Um, that means a lot to me. Uh, it was really important to me to like have that explained because I think that's a missing element. I like, I've always liked director commentaries. Uh, I've always liked things where I get to see how the person made the thing because I find them motivating. I find them illuminating and it, 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 yes, it does help me run things the way they're supposed to be run. By the way, if you're listening to this and you have no clue what the fuck I'm talking about, I made a game. I made a role, a tabletop role-playing game. You can get it at drivethroughrpg.com. Uh, you can buy the PDF. It's not that expensive at all. It might even be on sale right now. I'm not sure. But you can play a game I made that allows you to tell hard-boiled and noir and crime stories of all different kinds with you and your friends. And all you need are a few note cards and like two simple six-sided dice. It's very, very easy. You should play it. Um, 
Yes. Uh, if you're looking for fantasy noir, there's a, a D&D setting called Eberron. Um, it's not in print, but you can get it digitally. You can, Fantasy noir is excellent, but fantasy noir as a book genre, just as a regular publishing thing, super duper a thing. Other questions, issues, etc. Else, we will get out of here. What a great stream this was. I was so pleased by this. All right. Let's do some housekeeping and we'll get out of here for the evening. I don't have any outros for my workshop. I got to make an outro for the workshop. I got to put it on a different button on the pad. But uh, let's do some general housekeeping. The next time I'm here, in your eyes and in your ears, uh, will be on Tuesday, August the 29th, uh, for the writer's chat, which will pro I'd like to do it in the afternoon. But... Um, I've had mixed results. I've had mixed results because the audiences seem small. I had a bigger audience on Wednesday nights. The problem with doing it Wednesday nights was it was tiring. And I thought doing it during the day when I had a block of free time was going to help. So I'm still up in the air. There will be a chat. I just don't know if it's going to be midday or at the end of the day. Uh, the best place you can find information for when that's going to happen would be uh, A, listen to the podcast. John Helps You Write Better. Available wherever your podcasts can be casted. Just search for John Helps You Write Better. Um, or the newsletter, uh, which you can get by going to johnhelpsyouwritebetter.com and typing your email in a little box that pops up. Uh, those are the two best places where you'll get information as to when the chat is. It's probably going to be Tuesday during the day. Uh, and then the workshop stream of the week, whether that's noir, whether that's world building, uh, that information that is yet to be determined because we literally just talked about that. So stay tuned to the podcast and the website for, um, information on that. And of course there's a question, any thoughts on magical technology type of fantasy things to consider? Yes. A big thing to consider when your magic and or technology eliminates more problems than it solves, you are weakening your story and reducing the agency of your characters. Because if I can just use a doodad to get a thing done, why am I just not using the doodad all the time? And the most common answer is, well, we'll make the doodad scarce or fragile, which is intellectually lazy and creatively boring. You'd never want your magic and technology to eliminate threat or risk because otherwise it's just dull. So don't do it. Anything beyond that doesn't it. There are things to consider in terms of well, like geographically or structurally in my world, I have created technology that seems out of place and we never really seem to question it. That's more of a creative decision than a narrative one. Like I live in a desert. So of course we have ice magic. Like, uh, okay, sure. Not the greatest thing in the world, but what you really want to focus on, think about and deal with is why is the magic and technology the way that it is? That's, that's the thing to consider. That's the bigger, chewier, crunchier point.
Good question. Anything else? Else we shall march our way out of here. I will point out that this will go up on YouTube tomorrow. I'll, I will I will upload it tomorrow morning. And it will be out on the podcast feed in minutes. But YouTube takes like hours for me to put something. I don't know why. I guess it's because I don't post frequently enough. It just takes hours to upload. Even though I'm hardwired in and everything's nice, peachy, and keen, it's just slow as shit. But that is a thing for another day. Any other questions? Any other issues? All right, let's get out of here. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. I really appreciate it. This was a good one. I'll talk to you soon. All power to all people. See ya.